at the start of the week and a busy old day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. When they close their eyes and they go into themselves, they get lost in the music in a way that, you know... They're part of a thing. Well, yeah, but also for a brief moment, they can forget their woes. Right. And we all have woes. These are Irish citizens and I really, really want to stress that. Like this is, we are all children of Ireland. We grew up here, we're educated here, our families still live here. We are as Irish as anybody else. Just because yeah, our names aren't Anya or Aidan or whatever, we are Irish citizens. Then Deborah, tell us about James. James was a beautiful, heartwarming, full of life character. And before his, his addiction and even in his addiction, he was just a kind soul. And we'll start on Morning Ireland. Irish people fleeing the conflict in Sudan. Here's Audrey Carville. The Spanish government has confirmed that it has airlifted a number of Irish people from Sudan to safety. A Spanish plane took around 100 people from Khartoum amid the conflict, which has engulfed the capital for 10 days now. A number of other Irish people are reported to have been part of a French convoy leaving the city too. There has been intense shelling, grim factions within the military. The World Health Organisation say that nearly 500 people have been killed and thousands more injured since the fighting began. Abdullah is an Irish citizen. He's a medical student studying in Khartoum and his mother and sister were visiting him when the fighting broke out and they were trapped and couldn't get home. Well, once safely on a bus out of the capital last night, Abdullah spoke to our reporter Kate Varley about their experience over the past nine days. You would say it came out of all of a sudden, but like at the same time, like you knew the, you knew there was tension between the two forces. All of a sudden, like here, gunshots, then um, the sounds started getting louder and louder. And then all of a sudden, they started using airstrikes, which is a first for us, which in Sudan has never occurred before. And that's when people realized that the situation is uh, much scarier than the previous situations that we had. We, we, followed, the, um, we followed the instructions that the embassy gave us, which was um, the stay at home. And like, if there's any updates, they would let us know. We had the idea to leave, like, to like family members, like in other places in Khartoum. Uh, but every day you would hear gunshots, or you would hear like explosions, or like air airplanes, or anything. And then that would like derail like the whole idea. It's a stressful situation. It's a very new situation for everybody. And like this, leaving everything behind, this taking small bags. So what happened next then, Abdullah? You received an email with instructions from the Irish Embassy in Kenya. We woke up to an email from the embassy telling us to go to the French embassy. You know, it's best for us to take that route because at least, you know, like if it's with the embassy, they're going to try their best to secure our safety. So when we arrive, uh, they take your passport, they just write down your name and nationality. There is a bunch of um european nationalities there different backgrounds also all the same story like some of them were also very shocked with the short notice uh some of them didn't know um what to do but like somehow figured it out uh, i'll say the buses start moving around like 6 30 um 6 40 and like right now we're on the way there to hopefully um what they say is a military airport but i'm not too sure Unfortunately, right now, like on the buses, uh, we see armed forces, but not like Sudanese armed forces. Like I would say like French um, forces that like patrolling the area and being this cover for the buses and making sure everything's all right. Instructing, uh, instructing the bus drivers what to do, what not to do. 
So like right now, even though you like look out the window and it looks like a ghost town, which is not a site that we're really used to, but like you feel like um, an ounce of uh, safety. How many other Irish citizens do you think are there with you? I'm not too sure, but like excluding my family, like I wouldn't be surprised if it's like between 10 to 15 Irish citizens. Like it is four buses and a lot of people, so it's hard to tell. Were you happy with the contact that Irish officials had with you as an Irish citizen in helping you get to safety? Yeah, no, I'm very happy. Like, I, like um, you knew the situation was difficult for them, but you would realize like that they were trying and like they would email like randomly. Um, like in the emails, they would be like, we are supporting you. If there's anything you need or any way we can assist you, just let us know. Personally, like I did appreciate that. Like they kept us in the loop and telling us what they were doing with their plans. Even they say that they have very limited powers in Sudan since they don't have a diplomatic mission here with effort and everything, like they still figure out a way to take us to safety, to safety, hopefully. Abdullah there, then Audrey spoke to Tanishta and Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, Michal Martin. Tanishta, you're welcome and thanks for taking our call. The Spanish and the French have taken some Irish citizens to safety. What can you tell us about how many and where they are now? Yeah, could I first of all say that about 50, 50 Irish citizens um were evacuated uh, since yesterday from Khartoum to Djibouti with the support of France and Spain. And I want to take the opportunity to thank uh, the French authorities and the Spanish um, for doing a remarkable job in terms of a wider coordinated evacuation of European Union citizens. Uh, the situation is fluid. Uh, we estimate there's about 150 plus uh, Irish citizens registered with our embassy uh, in Nairobi. Uh, that can include dependents, so you'll appreciate the situation is fluid, but 50 have been evacuated so far um, and more to come. Uh, a consular team from the Department of Foreign Affairs have been on the ground in Djibouti since yesterday. Um, I sought government approval for the appointment of an emergency civil uh, assistance team. Um, to, to go there, uh, experience people with um, Defence Forces personnel uh, and up to 12 Defence Force personnel um, are, are, are being deployed also. Um, based in Djibouti uh, initially and working with um, our European Union um, teams um, who are, are the base being Djibouti, but obviously some would have access into, in, in, into Sudan given their historic um, presence on the ground there. And the Spanish flew them out. Did the French take them by roads? What do we know about how they got out? No, no, no the French and, uh, did by air, air by, 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 by um, air, air transport, uh, along with the Spanish. The French would have done the majority uh, at this stage. Um, very, very significant numbers um, airlifted up by the French um, and, and the Spanish also, um, and we, we deeply appreciate that. Is, is the airport in Khartoum being the, used, Thornister? Again, I have to go into the specific. It's not the actual main airport in Khartoum, but um, I don't want to go into all of the sure. details. Obviously, uh, we will allow the people on the ground to, to work through the situation. I just ask because the, airport, the main well, airport is on the front line of the conflict, so I, I would imagine exactly. it's not being yeah. used. No, no. And um, you can take it that um, the security situation is, is, is in everyone's mind and uh, obviously this has to be done safely um, and we have to protect all, all of our citizens. Uh, and so the 
citizens should continue to follow the Embassy of Ireland in Kenya uh, onto Twitter at IRLEMB Kenya for updated advice and we will continue to keep in touch. We have a team on the ground in Djibouti then who will support citizens who, who are being evacuated uh, in terms of accommodation in Djibouti and also assistance to travel back to Ireland from there. Uh, and this work will continue um, over the coming days. Um, and um, So the Irish sorry, citizens who are still there, where are they being told to gather? Or what can you tell us about that? Because we understand that they were gathering at the French embassy, which has since closed. Well, again, we're, we, we will give updated advice as uh, opportunities emerge in terms of getting people out. In the meantime, prior to such advice being given to citizens, we say stay indoors, stay safe. Uh, until we, there, there are further communications from, from the Irish team on the ground and that communication will be in the context of new opportunities that arise in terms of airlifting people out um, of Khartoum. This will take some days. Um, I think we're, we're pleased with the initial um, uh, outcome in the last 24 hours. Um, but, but it is something that's very, very fluid. Uh, and bearing in mind that the, the conflict is a ferocious one. Um, uh, and we also think of all those Sudanese civilians who were under huge uh, threat and pressure, uh, many dying. And we, you know, there's up to about 12 million um, uh, Sudanese citizens who are, as we speak, in acute food um, mm. dire situation. I want uh, to talk to you about that because there's no way of getting in, on. but I'll, I'll, I'll come to that in a few minutes, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. The Sudanese nationals who have family here in Ireland, are those Sudanese nationals also being flown out too? Yeah, look, we will help um, in, in terms of Irish families with dependents and, and relations and that's, you know, somewhat similar to what happened in Afghanistan. Um, so, the, the, you know, we're, we, we'll obviously be, our, our immediate response here is humanitarian uh, and obviously we will uh, support Irish families um, with, with Sudanese relatives and so on and we'll see what can be done in that context. But as I said earlier, of that 50, some will be dependents. Um, so it's very, very fluid um, and um, it, it's a flexible responsive approach that we will be taking. Tanishta Michal Martin talking to Audrey Carvel in Morning Ireland. Then later, Claire Byrne spoke to Dr Aya Mohammed, who was awaiting news of her father who was visiting Sudan. Dr Mohammed, thank you for joining us this morning. So your father is an Irish citizen and I understand he was in Khartoum to visit family. What's the very latest you've heard? So the very latest I heard, Claire, good morning. The very latest I heard is um, he's actually just arrived safely in Djibouti, thankfully. So he's just come off their military airbase and he's in a hotel at the moment. Okay, so he's safe safe in a hotel right now. Yes, he is, thank God. So I'm very, very happy and very relieved. And you had had a lot of worry over the weekend. I did. It was a really, really stressful and agonising weekend, I have to say. So I'm, I, my father is an Irish citizen. We've lived in Ireland for over 30 years. Ireland is the only home that I know. I've lived here since I was three years old. He's an obstetrician. We, I grew up in Castlebar. He worked in Mayor General Hospital for over 30 years. I'm a doctor myself. Um, I'm working in Dublin. And he went home. Um, it's been Ramadan over the last month. So very similar to kind of Christmas time. People go home. They celebrate at home. So um, he's retired recently and went home just for some family time and some fun and was meant to fly back on Saturday uh, evening and then on Saturday morning um, all these events kicked off basically this kind of fighting between the two factions of the army and the first thing that happened is 
they destroyed the airport, um, the rapid security forces. So as a result of that, all flights were stopped. So people were shot at on planes, planes were burnt down. Um, so that immediately meant that people couldn't get out, basically. And over the last six days, everything, over the last seven days, everything has kind of escalated. Mm-hmm. So... I, like many of other many other Sydney people that I know who are Irish citizens, have been doing my best in contacting the Department of Foreign Affairs and seeing, you know, what the plan is and, and what the plan is in terms of evacuation. And unfortunately, we hadn't really heard anything um, until yesterday morning at eight o'clock. I got contact from the um, consulate for embassy, sorry, in Kenya, to tell me that there was an evacuation that was going to happen within the next two hours, and that he, my, my father, had to make his way to the French embassy. Now, the French embassy is located in a very prominent part of embassies always are in all cities in a very prominent and affluent area part of the city but that has been very much targeted over the last week and it's quite dangerous so it's not somewhere that you would go to unless you had to but given the risks and given what's going on in the country and the fact that he wanted to get out he took that risk and thankfully he made it um they extended the, the, the schedule for people to arrive there assuming we were assuming to give more people a chance to arrive so it was 11 a.m and then it went to midday and then it went to 2 p.m um i have a number of family friends so once it got to they they watched about 180 people. They then shut the doors of the embassy. So there was a situation yesterday in Khartoum where people who really, really risk their lives and people that I know personally, really good family friends, left their homes and went to the most dangerous part of Khartoum to be locked out of the French embassy um, and told nothing, basically. So they weren't allowed in. They weren't given any form of shelter. They weren't told what the next plan is or what's going to happen. Um, and it was an absolute nightmare, I have and, to say. And I, mean, I where, where where did those people go once the doors of that French embassy were closed? So they, they literally, they dispersed, they scattered. I mean, we know people who managed to go next door because we had family friends who happened to live next door, but most people just had to, had to either go home or go somewhere else. The issue is they didn't want to. A lot of people wanted to find out if there was somebody else, there was somewhere else that they were going to evacuate and what was going to happen. And we were trying, we were calling everyone, the Department of Foreign Affairs, the embassy in Kenya, the embassy, just trying to get some information. And we were just constantly told that, we're not, you know, we're getting, it's very difficult. We're not getting information from the ground. We're not, and we, as we kept on, telling them at one stage I was like we are the ground we know what's happening this is this is the story that's getting fed back to us please give these people somewhere to go they were then directed to go to the Spanish ambassador's residence which no one no one knew where that was as I wouldn't know where some of these residences um, and in order for them to get there it, again a very prominent street in Khartoum and very very dangerous so a lot of people actually went home they yeah. just had to go you home s- you see you I, know? S- I suppose that we can understand this is essentially a war zone isn't it Aya yeah, and it's a absolutely. very fluid and moving and dangerous situation a hundred percent. There is no one to about that. And I completely, and I in fact defended the fact that all the emails that were sent out from the embassy said that anybody who partakes in this evacuation is at their own risk. That goes without saying. It's, it's, it's a risk to just stand by a window and sit down right now. So we know that. But I think if you take your own risk and go to an embassy, you should be allowed into that embassy, even if you're then told to go home. If they'd just taken those 50 people in and said, listen, there's nothing we can do for you, but this is the next step and you need to make it there, then at least I would have understood that. And these are but, Irish citizens. These are Irish citizens. And I really, really want to stress that. Like, this is, we are all children of Ireland. We grew up here. We're educated here. Our families still live here. We are as Irish as anybody else. Just because yeah, our names course. aren't Anya or Aidan or whatever, we are Irish citizens. And so these people are there and they're really, really put in the most precarious situation. And tell me about um, Aya, sorry to, to interrupt you, but I want to hear about it. this uh, friend of yours who has children and is trying yep. to escape Sudan yep. on land. Tell me about that situation. So, she's in a, she, so I have a very, very, I'm one of my best friends. She is 
the psychiatrist. She, her husband is a consultant anesthetist. Um, she, her kids are here. They're in school here. She went home again for Ramadan to spend some time with her family, got caught up in this situation, and during the course of the week, didn't want to leave the capital because was waiting for an evacuation attempt and knew that if there was any, any evacuation attempt, it would happen from Khartoum. Eventually had to leave the capital and have gone to a more rural part of Sudan. And now we can't even get in contact with her to let her know to come back in. So because this evacuation attempt has been so late in the coming, to be honest, she had to. She's got a one-year-old, she's got an 11-year-old, um, so she left with her family. And now we can't even contact her to get her back into the capital. So she will either have to more than likely go to either Port Sudan or go drive another, which is eight hours away from where she is, or drive again in about eight to 12 hours to get to the north of the country to go via Egypt. Mm-hmm. I mean, the options. And now, as of this morning, there's only one internet line that's actually worked. There's only one canning, mobile carrier that's working. The other ones have all been shut off. I am Mohammed from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was sitting in for Ryan and he was talking to choir master and conductor and music dude, David Brophy. Welcome, David Brophy. Um, Hi, Oliver. Music dude and, uh, sorry, principal music conductor. <laughs> principal conductor with the RT Concert Orchestra. Not that's anymore, the official really. That's the official thing. Not anymore. No, oh, many, sorry. many years ago I was that person. Yes, okay. Well, I'm, a music dude then is much music more accurate. Music dude. Is okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows. You, we, we, you would have seen uh, David in kind of, uh, you know, you've got your own brand of Davy Fitz level of energy and enthusiasm <laughs> there for bespoke community <laughs> choirs. Uh, the High Hopes Choir, huge success that one. Frontline choir. Those such lovely things, but slightly triggering for a pandemic era. Because you were remember that ad of you conducting people on on hundreds of screens. Um, but anyway, sorry. We talk about the latest collaboration between David Brophy, who is um, now music dude, formerly principal conductor of the RT Concert Orchestra, a collaboration with Dublin City Council, Sing Ireland, which brings you, uh, which sees you bringing communities from both sides of the Liffey. Um, it, has, it sounds like some new thing we've done. Both sides of the Liffey. What a division. Uh, to the Board Gosh Energy Theatre for one night only on the 21st of May. Uh, sing a song of Docklands, David Brophy. Uh, yes, it was. This was the genesis of this project uh, started many, many years ago. Where Dublin City Council they were they wanted to bring choirs into Dublin, and they kind of got in contact with me, and we ended up bringing choirs into Dublin, and it was kind of successful and not successful as well. A lot of choirs came from America, and they were more probably more interested in going to the Cliffs of Moher and getting out of Dublin actually than singing in Dublin. And I always kind of yeah. felt that was quite a transient thing, where a choir comes from elsewhere, they give a concert here, and then they leave and it's gone. And so we look. At, we were talking about a choral festival pre-pandemic for Dublin and I also kind of felt that choral festivals tend to be like over a weekend and then they're gone you know so I was kind of saying well look, there's lots of great music and creativity happening in the city anyway why don't we try and give that creativity musical creativity a platform that possibly doesn't exist normally uh, and hence we've come up with something we refer to as Docklands Voices and you refer to North, North and South Liffey yeah. uh, but of course people from that part of the city are they've got great pride in their own kind of small locales so you know if you're in Ringsend Irish Town well Pier Street is a million miles away like it's it's, it's that you have your own community I see here what you mean. Yeah, and yeah. I, so, so we, we launched into a consultation with residents and community groups and youth groups and organisations in the area over the pandemic. Endless amount of Zoom calls. It was delightful, <laughs> as you can imagine. It's been a long time coming together. Though. It's been a long time in yeah. the genesis of this. And, um, but we were keen to make sure that people who lived in the area were 
you know, very much uh, uh, the, the drivers of what this was going to become. And uh, so you learn then, as people say, like, well, I'm from the North Wall, Sheriff Street area, and East Wall is like a different place to me. So when yeah. we say Docklands, Docklands is actually made up of little, small, very, very tight-knit communities, and that's mm. what this event celebrates. I was going to ask you that, because when I think of the Docklands, I, I kind of think of, you know, Silicon Docks and the shiny glass towers to capitalism and corporatism. Yeah. Uh, you think it's kind of like soulless place where the people have disappeared. There's no one there after five well, o'clock I, on the weekends. Well, but it's still there, the heritage of the Docklands residents, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you've got the Docklands Preservation Society, uh, which is a fantastic organisation that looks back at the history of the workers who lived in that part of the city and were instrumental in actually building Dublin, the Dublin, not necessarily of today, but the Dublin of maybe 50 or 60 or 100 years ago. Right. Um, and uh, there's an awful lot of pride in, in, in the people who are fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generation Docklands residents who are down there and their great, 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 great grandfathers worked in their docks. Uh, but as you say, if you drive down that part yeah. of the city or walk around that part of the city, it is full of, you know, high corporate uh, structures, buildings. Uh, and it's there is a kind of a, uh, incongruity or something about mm. all those things that are all in the same place all the time yeah. so uh, having spoken to lots of the residents there are lots of residents who kind of feel well look we, maybe our voices have been lost among right. all this development over the past couple of decades yeah. and Docklands Voices is something that kind of brings their voice back into the centre again and there's no better place to do this than the Borgosh Energy Theatre Yeah and it's so it's kind of putting their hands up and saying look we're here We're here it's a little bit that because I haven't spoken to a lot of residents over the past three or four years they do kind of feel like it's not just even the uh, even the fact their voice aren't heard but I think the fact that they live if you live in a in one of the small houses in that area yeah. you've got these big towering buildings around I remember speaking to That's a woman right, down yeah. there uh, who's part of a, a gardening group down in, in East Wall and she kind of said like you know even just the levels of sunlight we have in our lives now is a lot less because all these wow. tall buildings around I don't get sun over my window anymore I feel like I live in a house that's kind of actually quite dark because of all these buildings around yeah. and people who, who who pass through Docklands or go to Docklands only to go to a bar or they go to the Borgosh and then leave and go back home again. Don't really think about these things. So we don't see the residential. We don't see the residential site. No. There's a large residential site there, and there's huge areas. So Ringsend Irish Town, uh, that's on the south. End. You mentioned East Wall, which is up on the north uh, side. North Wall, Sheriff Street, uh, East Wall, Grand Canal Pier Street are included as well. Yeah, we've got a group from Grand Canal Pier Street uh, of people who live on barges. If you go over the oh, bridge really? there, the Grand Canal, they actually live yeah. there. There's a very small community there, and uh, what Dublin City Council and Sing Ireland did, they came together and presented awards for people in different communities who wanted to write something about their experience of living in that community. And Oliver asked David about the music. And and the, the there, there's evocative song titles. These are new songs, aren't they? They've been written They're new songs. And, but also we've decided, to, you know, instead of just having people from the area, you've also brought four choirs in from outside the area okay. who are going to actually reflect upon what they what they see as, you know, the, the people who live in that part of the city, what their experience is. Yeah. And so it'll be a very varied evening. We've also got Jerry Fish uh, is going to join us as well. And he's done a lot of work in his, I think his father's from the Docklands area in Dublin. He's done a lot of Docker songs over the years. So, very good. so it's a very evening. Well, give us a flavour for the type of uh, organisations that are involved. Uh, well, we've got we've got some schools involved. We've got City mm. Key National School. We've got Central Model Senior School. Uh, they're involved. We've got, as I mentioned earlier, on the Docklands Preservation Society involved. Yep. The Ringsdown Irish Town Community Centre. They're involved too. And then, in terms of choirs, we're going to come in from outside the Docklands area and reflect upon that. We've got the Guinness Choir. We've got Cornanogue. Uh, we've got uh, King's Hospital School Choir, and we've got Maryfield College Choir as well. So they they come in. It's kind of we. We're keen 
not to have it as, as, as something I, I suppose that's just the Docklands on its own although we want obviously people from the Docklands to come in tickets are 11.50 for this event which is probably the cheapest reason. concert yeah. that will take place in the, in the, yes, in the Borgosh this year <laughs> and of course people who have gone to the Borgosh realise if you've got a family of four that's coming yeah. 250 quid gone straight away so we're, we're anxious that the local residents That makes it very accessible for, for accessible people living across the road Living across the road yeah. uh, but we're also keen to get what's the, the wider Dublin city what's their sense of the Docklands and who, do they understand what goes on down there because I think a lot of people don't see the amount of creative it's a huge amount of creativity that goes on that part of the city and this is a showcase of that creativity Yeah well I, I'm already learning myself and as I said the song titles are evocative so they are very much The Boat People of Grand Canal Dock is one of the songs yes. The River Carries Us Home Tell us about the songs and what they, the, they're kind of telling us through Yeah through the songs them. are a mixture of like uh, a lot of, some of the songs obviously refer to and they, they hark back to the Dockers heritage of, and there are many songs that are you know songs from the 19th century and probably even earlier than that from the 18th century that right. were that were of the Docklands in that area yeah. uh, and there's a very rich musical heritage already in existence there that in many ways just need to be created and, uh, and, and that's going to be reflected in the evening as well but there's also uh, there's what children uh, Carmel Whelan has worked with school children in the area and she's asked the, 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 the students what do they feel about living in the area and it's fascinating what they've come up with in terms of it's their experience and the music reflects the lived experience of the area and it is it it reflects that's that's my phone telling me I've got to be somewhere at ten o'clock <laughs> and it reflects the the living experience of those living in the area and so it's 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 the evening is about you know heritage from the past the Dockers heritage but also the children who are there today and what it's like to to grow up in that part of the city yeah. uh, today. You've brought kind of a couple of communities together through choirs. Um, what's the importance of kind of you know what does it do to someone when they're in a group singing together? Well. I mean, the programs that people have seen on television, that says it all. Like, I mean, it's like, first of all, when you sing, uh, you get good drugs into your body. Your brain releases oxytocin and endorphins. And that's all good for you, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there's also recent research and the research into, into group singing, and when we call it choirs, but group singing in general, mm-hmm. is still quite young. And we, this recent research suggests that when you sing in a group of people together, after about 15 minutes, your heartbeat, all the heartbeats of people singing together actually go around the same speed. Really? That's that's a bonding mechanism that yeah. we don't really haven't really appreciated up to now. We probably so don't understand. We don't really understand it. it. No, and it's it's it makes sense because if you're all if you're all singing the same song, same you're all rhythm. breathing at the same time, and you're all singing the same length of phrase, yeah. your hearts are eventually going to align. Mm. And so we we're not quite hundred percent sure what that in terms of bonding people together. What's that? What what that does for people? But we know, and anybody who has watched like the programs are done on on television uh, with choirs will know the power uh, of singing. And it's not just the power of singing together what it does for the people themselves, but also th- this notion of your voice being heard. And there are many right. communities whose voices are not heard and yeah. I believe the people who live in that part of the city in Docklands, th- their voice needs to be heard too. Well, it's, it's kind of working out that way, isn't it? Um, I'm interested though in the sort of, uh, the kind of the, the vibrations that go through a group when they're singing together. And um, because you, I think you said once before about you saw some guy who couldn't really sing very well, but he had his eyes closed and he was kind of lost in the moment. Can you kind of, since you've lived through music all your life, can you kind of give us a, a, a sort of a description of what it is to be sort of lost in that flow of Yeah, music, I suppose it's like... Um, where your head goes to. Yeah, I mean, when I was first approached about I Hope Square many years ago, I was kind of slightly, a little bit reluctant because you do end up with, this was going to be a choir where there's no auditions. So it was an open door, you come in, you can sing. And if you, everyone can sing, you might not be able to sing the right note all the time, but you can sing. And uh, so I was kind of, it took me actually a bit of a while to realise, but let's get beyond this, bro, feelings and see, can you engage with something that's a bit more maybe authentic than just like 
you know, seeing exactly the right notes at the right time. Yeah. And it dawned on me that, you know, if you look at, let's say, you go to nativity concerts at Christmas and you see a group of six-year-olds and you've got the one kid who's kind of possibly can sing the B-flat exactly in the right place. Right. They're the ones singing the loudest, you know, in the, in the corner, you know, and they've got yeah. their eyes closed. They're completely lost in in the power it is to make a sound and yeah. to make a sound as a human being, you know. Um, and we know that certain frequencies of you singing and, and uh, is good for your body. Very like good. actually physically very physically good. Physically The yeah. research is there. Uh, so the research is there for that. So like I, I learned certainly with the high up score because I probably learned more from the singers in the high up score than they learned from me if, if ah, the truth really? be told. Okay. And I realised that well you see these people here and some of the lads really they're not and you can see on the, on the on the series we made they're not really singing the right notes all the time but they love singing mm. And they're not aware of the fact that maybe that, you know, everyone else around them is in G and they're in F sharp minor or something, you know. <laughs> they're not fully aware of that, but they're aware of them that they're making the song and they're, mm. when they close their eyes and they go into themselves, they get lost in the music in a way yes. that, you know... They're part of a thing. Well, yeah, but also for a brief moment, they can forget their woes. Right, and okay. we all have woes. And singing is something where you escape as well. And we're so all looking for escape. You spoke about this. Yeah, you, you spoke about the Scottish Island. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's for sale earlier on. We, this is, many people who sing in choirs, they go to their island for two hours of rehearsal. It's much cheaper. It's much cheaper. <laughs> David Brophy with Oliver Callan in the morning. And on the live line, remembering two lost lives on the night of Good Friday in Dublin. On the night of Good Friday, uh, 7th of April, on the morning of Easter Saturday morning, did you know that two men drowned, two young men drowned in the Liffey in Dublin, just, just down past Houston Station? I was unaware of it until I was told about it this morning. Now, I was out of the country at the time, but that's no excuse. I still read the papers every day and listen. It didn't feature in, as far as we can find out, on RTE or News Talk or whatever. It didn't feature in any national newspaper the following day uh, or any of the Sunday papers. In fairness, it did feature, thanks to Ronan McGreevy of the Irish Times, who has a special interest in uh, these uh, issues because the two men were homeless. Uh, Ronan wrote a lovely piece the following Tuesday, sorry, the following Tuesday week, Tuesday the 18th of April, but he still did did write it in the Irish Times. But then again, this is the Irish Times that today, side by side, and the news pages put two stories side by side, one the death of a dog and the other... Um, the death of a talented young uh, boxer from County Leitrim, Oren Gettins, and he's only 23, and I know he's been buried today, so deepest sympathy to his family. So, um, but the family of Deborah, the family of James Nicholl, who's one of the men who drowned in the Liffey, we do not know, still, three weeks later, the name of the other man who drowned. Now, hopefully his family do, because both of them happen to be ha- homeless. And Deborah Nicol Walsh is on the line. Deborah, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. And condolences on the death of James. And did Thank you, you. Did you call him James or Jimmy or Jim or JJ? Or? He was called multiple names. It was okay. Jimmy, James. Okay. Um, we had me and him had your own special name, but that that was between me and him. But okay. Um, yeah, but most people would have known him either as James, Jimmy, or Seamus. James, okay. And tell tell us what age was he when he died on Easter Saturday morning? 
he turned 41 on the 9th of March this year. Ah, so he's just just turned 41. Yeah. Okay. And w- where had he been living, do you know, Deborah? I know he was in a, host- a hostel in Dublin. He had yeah. been there for quite a while with his partner. Okay. That's where he was living, so. Okay. And do you, do you know what happened? Um, as far as we're aware, um, James and his partner were coming across um, Cape Street Bridge okay. and there was a distress call from a, a person on the bridge about the young gentleman that went into Liffey and James just said that he would he would jump in. Now, as far as we're made aware, people had told him not to, okay. but James stated that he was ex-army and yeah. well able to swim and he just jumped in. Which he, which he is. He was ex-army. Yes, he okay. was, yeah. So he went in to rescue this stranger. Yes. And do we know what happened? Um, well, as far as we've been told, he, he, he did manage to, to get hold of the, that poor gentleman and um, on three or four occasions. And then, unfortunately, um, he, he lost his life. The, I suppose the current was too much and, and took him. And uh, you you said he was with his partner crossing the bridge at the time. Yeah. So she would have seen this. Yes. Yeah. So obviously the Gardaí Fire Brigade arrived in in numbers, I presume. Yeah. Um, As far as I'm aware, they did. And um, unfortunately, James wasn't recovered until the following morning, I think around 10.30 in around that time or not long after it. And was he found near the spot where he had entered the the Liffey? Um, I, I think so. I'm not 100% okay. sure on, on that, Joe, so I, I couldn't tell you really. Okay. Now, I will say, and this this should be said, that the Gardaí and the homeless charity, a helping hand, described your brother, uh, Jimmy, as a hero for diving Absolutely. into the freezing... Remember how cold it was that weekend, that... that uh, <laughs> Easter weekend. A hero for diving into the freezing cold river to save a random man's life that was drowning uh, in the Liffey. He didn't hesitate to dive in and try and help the poor soul in the water. He jumped straight in and doing so he lost his life trying to save another human's life. Mr Nickel was homeless at the time but the charity said and uh, I, I know you're okay about me saying this. The charity said he had been clean from addiction and was looking good to be housed when the tragedy uh, accord. Even though James didn't have much himself and was homeless, he always looked out for others who lived on the street. Everyone is devastated by his loss. They said that on their Facebook cha- page. He's a hero. This is Helping Hand, the homeless charity. He's a hero in our eyes and deserves to be recognised as one. We hope you are in heaven, Jimmy, with your baby and shining down on everyone. Do we have any idea who the other lad was? He was only 20. It looks in his 20s, the guard, he's a... Well, no. I, I do know who it is, but okay. that's oh, not sorry. for me. Yeah, to... no, no, okay, but it hasn't been publicly uh, revealed. Yeah. Okay, uh, then Deborah, tell us, tell us about James. James was a beautiful, heartwarming, full of life character. And before his his addiction and even in his addiction, he was just a kind soul. He was a kind soul. He was a very funny person, very witty person. Um, yeah, that's the, the James I remember. Okay, like and when... he, he'd light up a room. Well, that's Deborah remembering her brother, James Nicholl. And Johnny then called Joe. Johnny, Johnny, good afternoon, Johnny. 
Good afternoon, John. How are you? And I know this is a very, very difficult call for you to make. Yeah, I just thought that I'd best to clarify some things. And yeah. the, the main thing is to be able to thank Jimmy and his sister Deborah for talking about it. Yeah. Because I know how difficult it can be for her. And you were the best friend of the other man who died? I was, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, he's twenty. He was twenty-one when he died. This is actually his birthday today. His twenty-second birthday oh today. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. God rest him. God rest him, Johnny. And uh, Johnny, uh, were, were you? Were, had you been in touch with him or? I I was there on the night. Jimmy actually oh. answered my screams for help, and oh, as far as I'm aware, I was the last person to speak to Jimmy. <clears throat> for me, it was a moment of real surrealness and what was going on and and asking for help and a complete stranger passing by and then with his partner as well to not even think twice and just go ahead. And that was Jimmy's Jimmy's reaction. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And I, I did I when when he when he got up I put my hands on him and I said, Look, if you can't swim, don't he's a good swimmer and he's struggling and he told me I'm ex army, I'll get him and he went straight in. And I just think it was a real act of braveness and selflessness. And, and, and like for me, it restored my faith in humanity because, Jesus, I don't know if, a straight, if, if any other situation yeah. had many other strangers have helped, and there was a lot of people in town. It's just just gone just gone twenty past one. 20 a lot of people in okay. town, and I'm on the phone. And for me, it was I can't swim, and I felt real hopeless at the time because yeah. the fact that I can't swim, and I was just on the phone to the the guards trying to get them there. Yeah. Um. And it's just a real shame that nobody could help all of the people there, even yeah. when emergency services arrived, because of how far in the middle they were. We couldn't get anything to them. They were in the middle uh, of the river, and, God. Yeah, and then the boat took so long to arrive, but that's because, I suppose, it was 20 past one in the morning. Yeah, the, the fire brigade have a boat, but it's located down past the custom house. They've got to, yeah. they send a crew, yeah. well, they send a crew on a, on a fire appliance down, and they... Mm. They get it. They get in and get up as, up as quick as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And Johnny, yeah. I know, I know, and I don't want the name of this young <clears throat> man. This. Uh, I'm just respecting his family. Yeah, so I haven't asked the question. No, but no, don't, don't, if they wanted him yeah, to be named, yeah. they would have done it by now. I would suspect. Okay. Johnny, there, and if any of that conversation has affected you, you can find help and support at rte.ie/helplines. And on Morning Ireland, Audrey Carvel was talking to Collie Ennis about the worrying situation with Irish frog spawn and what it might indicate for our ecosystems. Now, frog spawn usually signals nature waking up for spring. But a zoology researcher was carrying out some work in the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains over the weekend. But he found nothing but dead, rotting spawn in the Wicklow Mountains. Collie Ennis is with the School of Natural Sciences at Trinity College. He's on the line. Collie, this isn't good. What does it tell us about our ecosystem? Well, it's not a good sign because frogs are a really good indicator of healthy ecosystems. And to see a mass die-off of spawn in these large numbers, and especially in a wilderness area, um, it's really concerning. What could have caused all the dead spawn? <laughs> There's a number of factors that could have played a part. Um, it's quite hard to tell. We'd need to do long-term studies to see what is, uh, is affecting them. But we're guessing that the swings in temperature that we got during the spring 
could have affected them. Also, frogs and amphibians need very cold temperatures to kick them into gear for reproduction. So we had a very mild winter and then we had a very, very cold uh, snap in the spring and all those kind of factors can add up. Acidity in the water could be another factor as well. That's why we really need to get some kind of boots on the ground to see what's going on. What about water pollution, Collie? It doesn't seem to be a factor because we put this out on social media and people in private gardens with their own ponds have noticed the exact same thing. So it's very random but very widespread throughout the country and even into East England as well. We've gotten reports from uh, from over there. So, yeah, really want to watch. Yeah, because you say that in other parts of the world, frogs have been dying due to a fungus. Yes, chytrid fungus. Now, we did test for that with the Herpetological Society of Ireland and we didn't find it in the country yet. So it doesn't look like that's uh, the cause here. You'd notice dead adults if, if that had uh, been a factor here as well. It's just the spawn that's been affected. So, you know, a really real, a real head scratcher, but something that, you know, we'd like to get to the bottom of. Collie Ennis talking to Wardy Carvel from Morning Ireland. And to the afternoon, and as we are beginning to see the potential threats of ChatGBT and other AI, Ray Darcy was chatting to Professor Gregory Proven of UCC about all things AI. There was an article in the Irish Times that caught our eye last week. The headline read, ChatGPT poses an existential threat and the window for gaining control over it is small. The author was uh, Gregory Proven. Uh, Gregory is Professor of Computer Science and Information Technology at University College Cork and he has come into our Cork studio to have a chat. How are you doing, Gregory? I'm doing very well, thanks, Ray. Thank you very much for uh, bringing me on to the show. Yeah, uh, and thanks for coming in. Now, now... (laughs) People are probably wondering why all the talk so suddenly. Um, because AI was the thing of sci-fi movies 10, 15 years ago. And then there was a little bit of chat about it. But over the last while, you can't open up a paper without seeing an article about the capabilities of AI. So what has happened? I would say that there is a phase change that is going on and we really have to understand what that phase change is all about and what it can mean for each of our lives. So let me give... Um, two examples of previous phase changes. So one is the Google search engine. So everybody uses Google today. Mm. And what this search engine allowed us to do is gain access to all of the information on the web. Now, one of the interesting things about this search engine is that it has safety built into the algorithm. And this is because it weights the sources on the web. So if a lot of people are citing a particular source, it will get a high weight. And if very few people, if Joe Madman has very few pointers on the web, then he's going to get very low weight. Uh-huh. And Google will then return your search results based on the weight it assigns. So that is this built-in safety mechanism so that if everybody is citing a particular source, then it's more likely that that source is credible. So then the next phase change, in my view, would be the advent of social media. And pretty much everybody is on social media today. And, you know, Facebook has become very popular. And the problem is that Facebook doesn't have any safety built into it. And, you know, as a consequence, we've seen that there, there's been a lot of negative press about several aspects of, of these things. And, you know, for example, uh, young girls have known to be suffering with Instagram 
and you know there was a a, a congressional hearing in the U.S. about this. And you know the interesting thing to me is that there hasn't been you know a huge kickback on this or as significant a kickback. So ChatGPT now is amping that up by at least one level of magnitude, and you know there is no safety built into this, and so we really have to pay attention. Okay, uh, I'm looking at the statistics. So um, this time, like when it came out first, there were ten thousand users. Now there are over one hundred million. Um, so it's increased its uh, usage uh, in two months from ten thousand to one hundred million. Um, for people who haven't used it, uh, Chat GPT is it, is it not just another form of Google? It it's significantly more than Google. Okay, so um, it enables you to have interactions where it goes beyond what data it's been built on. So so Google the Google search engine it just returns to you information on the web. Okay, right. And and now this is what's called generative AI. So it you can give it a theme and it will expand on the theme and because people don't really know how the technology works underneath the hood, you don't know how it's going to generate responses. So we'll give people examples there. So a few weeks ago, for example, uh, upstairs they asked ChatGPT to generate a poem about me, uh, I think in the style of WB Yeats or something. And within seconds then there was a, a seven or eight verse stanza poem uh, using some of the details about me that I run and, and eat porridge and stuff like that. And I included all those details into it. Uh, I've used AI this morning to replicate my voice. Um, I can do that. There are loads of different things. So we'll come to voices later on because we've loads of things to talk about. And, and the, the thing, as you said, and the important word in there is that it's creating things. So it's creating things that haven't existed prior to your request. Yes, and okay. you know that's the the power, both positive and negative. And um, you know that people have talked about it as hallucinating. So you know you you can type in some queries, and it can generate stuff that is provably false. And you're wondering where does it get this information from? If you were to talk to the OpenAI creators, they would say, "Well, we don't know." So Ray asked Gregory about the pros and cons of AI. The pros are, for example, uh, AI has been used in cancer treatment, um, diagnostic cancer treatment, and it works very effectively. Um, so there are loads of pros. The cons, though, are very worrying. Um, for example, now, if you're on Snapchat, and Snapchat is aimed now at or is appealing to sort of pre-teens and teens, younger teens, you can have your AI friend. Um, and I saw, uh, I suppose, a stunt where... This man, pretended to be a 13-year-old, said he was meeting uh, a 31-year-old man for sex. And the AI friend, which is put in there by Snapchat, didn't in any way give advice or intervene or didn't know how to. So the, the, there's no moral compass. This, yes. this AI has no moral compass whatsoever. And it, it, it's where is it getting its information from? Like if, if I say to it, can I have a picture of a horse on the Curra painted in the style of Jack B. Yeats? And it delivers that. Where where does it get that the you know the the basics from? It trolls the internet and it pulls everything it can down. And as you're saying, it's exactly right. There is no moral training in here. And part of the question is, can morality be inferred from data? And look, you know, we have all kinds of good science on the the web, but we have a lot of hate speech. We have all kinds of nonsense and. 
um, you know, the AI is just pulling this data down and it doesn't know what is right, what is wrong. And so the a question is, how can you infer that some data is believable versus being less believable? Okay. And one of the things that I think about is, you know, if, if you were to train it to be looking at the history of warfare, right? You know, we've seen warfare throughout our history. And a question might be, can the AI infer that war is okay from the fact that we've had continuous war? And where would you find information about war being immoral or just wars? I mean, th these are these are questions. So, you know, you've cited the case where the AI talks about all kinds of dark aspects of life and, and it has no moral compass. Which is worrying. Yes. The, the other thing is, and I still can't get over the fact that, that people don't know how it works, but what, it, what people do know um, is that it, it's, it's feeding itself. So it, just by asking it a question, we are feeding it um, yeah. and it's getting bigger and bigger. And now the people who have designed it as in OpenAI, they are providing a transcription service and and uh, which means that now all podcasts and all that stuff will be transcribed, which will give chat GPT more information. Um, so so when, when it, like, does it, like, it, it's creating things that don't exist. Okay, fine. But, but what about when it comes to, say, mathematics and science? Is it doing things that humans haven't done? Uh, not as no, yet, but, right. but people are hoping that it will. And, you know, certainly in drug discovery, a lot of the drug companies are really pushing on this technology, hoping that they'll get a leg up in developing new drugs that, that, that we haven't been able to as yet. OK. So where is the existential threat then, Gregory? Well, I could give an example from my own workplace. So yeah. um, Microsoft has rolled out ChatGPT technology across Microsoft Office. The, the Bing search engine uses ChatGPT. And so... We now are using ChatGPT technology on a day-to-day -day basis because Microsoft is the basis of our um, IT structure. Mm. And we have not been informed about this by Microsoft. Um, we haven't given, been given an opt-in or opt-out capability. And so we are, sub, we are you know, unconsciously using ChatGPT. And that concerns me because we don't really know how it works. And if I were to contrast the current Google search engine, we know very well how that works. And as I said, we understand that there is safety built into that. If we use a ChatGPT-based search engine, we don't know the veracity of the results it would give us. And you know, this is a very simple thing, but it, it is affecting us Okay. Microsoft is a huge multinational company with, with a long history in what it does. Uh, so it is now putting this chat GPT, which is sort of like putting Google on your, on your, on, uh, your computer. Why would it do it if there was some sort of threat, existential threat involved? I think it's all about making a profit. And, you know, they, they think that this is the way forward. This is the way that can give them a leg up on Google. I mean, the the, um, the Google search engine is the dominant search engine and they're hoping that this will provide them with greater leverage. Professor Gregory Proven from The Ray Darcy Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the joys of bird watching. 
two enthusiasts are Eddie Hallowell and Pauline Doyle, and they were waxing lyrical about our avian friends. Just don't call them twitchers. Eddie, to you first now, when did you first become interested in, in bird watching? Um, it was about four or five years ago. I was just just cycling out to college, you know, a typical 20-minute commute. Where was and, that? Uh, Newell down in Limerick. So the route out there is on the river and the canal, and it's just really beautiful. And you just kind of pick up things, little things going by, and then, you know, little darts of birds going by, and there you go, you get an ID book, and you just so get you obsessed. So st- you started with the book then when you began to notice the different birds? Yeah, no, I've had, I've had the same book since the very start, and it's in tatters, but it's <laughs> it's a great book nonetheless. Yeah. Still useful. Absolutely. And you know that term twitcher that I use, do, mm-hmm. do you, would you describe yourself as a twitcher? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> Why not? No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't seek, um, I don't seek birds. I just, I just enjoy what's around me. Yeah. So you notice yeah. them rather than go out to find them. Is that? Yeah, is that, is yeah. That fair? I think sometimes you can go to different habitats and hopefully you'll see something, but be happy. I'm also happy with what I do see, kind of mm. thing. And you what know. did you see first? What, can you remember what the first bird was that you looked up in that book? In in that book, yeah, the first one was is a kingfisher is on that is on that route to the canal, and a big flash of blue. I think everyone Gorgeous. every everyone who's into bird watching has or anyone even outside that has probably knows that big flash of blue Beautiful. or that small flash of blue. My apologies. And and is that all you see, just the flash, or did you see him landing? Um, most of the time you wouldn't see them landing, as in just because they're so small and they're also really fast as well, and they yeah. go really, really straight and just. They know where they're going. Is that's what it's, that's what it seems like, anyways, to me. But what a lovely but, uh, thing to see! Oh yeah, absolutely beautiful. And Pauline, for you, how long have you been interested in birds? Um, since I was a child, really, I was born and reared in the countryside, um, in Mayo, and um, before television. Uh, so, our sort of our playground was the fields around us, and I noticed all the birds that uh, were out and about in the fields and the hedgerows and so on. And I knew about 20 birds then. Uh, my parents would have told me, you know, the basic birds like blackbird and robin and thrush. And, and I knew, you know, swallows and mm-hmm. mute swan and so on. And then I went off to boarding school and um, eventually came to Dublin. And when I started uh, working, I and met my husband. He also had an interest in nature, you know, Ethne and Kiro, Kiro Gela. So we started to bird watch um, not a lot in the beginning because our children were young. But in 1981, he brought me a book for my birthday and it was my first bird book. And on one of the pages, there were these very exotic looking birds. One of them was the kingfisher again and the other one was the jay. And some other very colourful birds like vagrants that come into Ireland, like a golden oriole and um, and a bird called a hoopoe. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to see these birds? And it, then that started and reawakened my interest again. And we started to go out locally, first of all. And eventually then we, we joined a group. And that and and what difference did that make joining a group? Well, joining a group uh, was very interesting because uh, we got more. We met fellow uh, f- people like ourselves who had an interest in bird watching, and also people who had a lot of information. And also we had leaders uh, who uh, were very experienced in bird watching, and we were brought to 
specific places to see particular birds. Mm -hmm. We didn't always see those birds when we got there. But, you know, there was always a chance. And that's the excitement of bird watching, really. And have you managed to tick off those birds? I have. All of those birds, yeah. I, not all in Ireland, yeah. because some of them were visitors to Ireland. But I saw my first jay in the 80s in the Phoenix Park and it was very exciting. It's a, it's a member of the Crow family and it has lovely sort of blue and black, like a flash and, uh, uh, on its way. It's just, it's just a very interesting bird. Well, you, know, you have to know what you're looking for because I'd say I could see him, the jay, and yes. say, well, that's a crow. Yes. Well, not really. Okay. <laughs> no. And they're elusive, really. They're not, not that easy to see unless you know what you're looking for. But I was with a very experienced, you know, bird, uh, birder and uh, they pointed it out to me and that was very exciting. So birder, you, you said there, that's another Well, I say bir- like bird, birder to me is a person who enjoys and sees birds. Twitcher is a different thing. Completely Twitcher to me is a, is a person who... You know, you get up in the morning and you hear there's a, a, a rare bird on, on Cape Clear and you get into your car and you drive down badly and you hope to see the bird and you're joined by other people who are, who come even maybe from England or anywhere to see this particular right. bird. It might have been, you know, blown in from, from you know, travelling south in America, uh, in the Americas, down, going down south. And uh, the gales sometimes blow birds onto the west coast of Ireland and they land in islands and places like yeah, that. But you're uh, not that obsessed, you're saying? I wouldn't, no. No, if I was in the area, I would go to see it, but I would not, uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't uh, give up my job. Pauline Doyle and Eddie Hellowell from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was talking to recently qualified firefighter Peter Hunt about undertaking rigorous training in the full glare of the TV cameras. There's a great series going out at the moment. It's Osquelga. It's Nini Nifui Ilunt. It's on RT1. The second episode is on tonight at eight o'clock. That's 999 under training, isn't it? That's it. So some of the service featured, they include search and rescue. You have the Coast Guard in there, mountain rescue and everything. Um, You were obviously with the fire brigade. Uh, any particular parts? Is there are different parts of the fire brigade that you train in? Yeah, so we do the firefighting training and we do a paramedic training. So on this training, they follow me on the paramedic side of the training in yeah. uh, the O'Brien Institute in uh, Marino. And then they follow me out on the station doing both the ambulance and then on the fire truck as well. And because you're, uh, the fire brigade runs ambulances, don't they? Yeah, so there's 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 uh, four, 14 ambulances uh, in the Dublin in Dublin Fire Brigade. All right. So there'll be, there's, I think there's... 12, there's 12 stations so there's, and there's two and uh, a couple of stations there. So Peter Hunt talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.